At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your loyal co-host, Mark Begney, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. I have excellent news. Sweet. Given I like that, excellent news. Given that I have just decided that we are the premier board gaming podcast of Canada, and therefore the Thanks. premier podcast of Canada, I think by extension, and by the law of transitivity, which I do not understand, we are now the official podcast of Harry and Megan. Nice. That's how it works. So we are now officially a royal podcast. Ooh. We get all their titles and lands that they gave up. Nice. I- I'm not sure how that works. I think this might mean that we get to tell common people what to do in Kingston and or hunt them for sport. I'm not 100% sure. More so than usual. Yeah, I mean, before we this podcast was very agnostic on the issue of monarchism versus rep- republicanism. But now I think it's safe to say, given this, we, we kind of have to commit to the whole monarchy thing. So that, that all that time we spent... Building the two-man palaquin is going to pay off, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. It, now, the problem is we would have to find servants with the sufficient core strength to be able to hoist oh. our two extensive <laughs> forms. And also, we need to get them snowsuits so that we can palanquin out in the winter. Yes. And the palanquin has not yet been winterized, so that's a bit of a problem. All right, moving on. <laughs> Enough of the silliness. <laughs> All right. If I don't get to be silly, I don't know what else I, I have know. to say. Well, this is our show for the beginning of 2020, Mark. And that being said, I want to make sure I thank all of our listeners that got us through last year. And that was the whole point, right? We want to make a popular podcast without selling out. Can a quality podcast be made on content alone? And as soon as we create some quality content, I'll let you know how that goes. (laughs) So we are going to talk about our Aurus, the as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. And we are going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And our topic for this week is 2020 New Year's resolutions. We've been doing this for three years straight. And every show after the show, we do our year in review of the previous year. We do our New Year's resolutions. And for the past two years, we've been checking in on how our past resolutions have been doing. Spoiler alert, generally not well. And we'll talk about what we try to endeavor to accomplish in the new year for gaming. I have a little mini topic, Mark, that, I, that I'm going to shoehorn in here. This is, I thought of this earlier today. I really want to know what you think about it. Because a long time ago, we talked about rules explaining, right? And how yes. to be good rules explainer. So it goes, sort of feeds into that. And the fact that 
before you'd come along, we'd sit down as a group and we'd work through the rule book and learn the game together as a group. And now I've learned that that is foolish and an awful mistake and that the game should be ready to go and the person should know the rules. But I'm wondering if you feel as though that that would makes the other people feel as though that there's a disadvantage, that there's one person at the table that knows the rules extensively, whereas the other people don't. Whereas, you know, usually it was a group that learned it together and now there's a person that ex- exclusively knows the rules better than everybody else. Does well, he, do you think that Zolay feel as though that gives him an advantage or her an advantage? I think there are a number of things. Number one, I think that the gulf of understanding between the rules explainer and the people getting the rules explanation will narrow as a function of the quality of the rules explanation in the first place. If it's a bad rules explanation, then yes, only the rules explainer will know how the game works. But if it's a good rules explanation, presumably people should be closer in terms of... No, the I know, I know the, the actual physicality of learning the rules will be closer, but I'm talking about the, the mental... The physicality. Well, not the physicality, I just meant like the actuality. They will actually know the game as much as the game explainer. Right. But mentally, will right. they feel as though... I think for every person that feels a sense of powerlessness in the face of, or, or lack of control, or feeling at a disadvantage, I think there might be some other people, and this is definitely true of me as well, who feel like they get to ignore the bits that they want to ignore, and it's sort of a safety blanket. I certainly know that this can be taken to extreme when, when explaining rules to a point that I, I definitely don't enjoy, where it's clear that people aren't bothering to retain anything, because they know that when it comes time to figure out the resolution later, they can just offload all that responsibility onto the person who knows the game better. And so there's a sense of comfort for a lot of people, knowing that they don't have to internalize everything. And I, I definitely see that in a lot of groups. So it, it, it depends on the taste. Some people are control freaks, and if they don't understand everything, then... They're going to feel nervous about everything, and for them, yes, absolutely, they should probably be the rules explainer, but past that, I, for right. many people, I think it's an asset. Alrighty. End of mini-topic. Okay. On to the yet-named retrospective Eurus. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. See, this is why I never say it. Yeah, yeah. Yet See, to be named. On the, on the topic of abdicating responsibility and using someone else as a safety blanket for actually Oof. having the necessary knowledge and information, the as-yet-unnamed wow. retrospective intro segment, the Aurus. Last year, we reviewed Gaslands <laughs> by Glenn Ford and Mike Hutchison, put up by Osprey. And I have to say that over the course of the past year, in 2019, they released the updated version Gaslands Refueled which now is only the only credit designer there is Mike Hutchison, which is very much a Gaslands 2.0 with rules clarifications. No real major rules changes, although a couple that, that, that might amount to that. And double the content, double the sponsors, double the perks. I've been having a blast with it. It remains the my, my go-to intro, low-cost, low-commitment miniatures rule game system because the fundamental actions of just moving around your cars is pleasant. The toys are also pleasant, but you don't need toys if you don't want them. And you get to play with Hot Wheels cars, which is fabulous. And so my collection of Hot Wheels has grown beyond all reason, but I still haven't spent much on this particular game, despite the fact that I keep getting new Hot Wheels from the the supermarket. Well, it's a theme or genre that really, you know, people really go for, right? This Mad Max cars zipping around, shooting each other, and there's been car wars out this whole time, but I think Gaslands really hits all of those things, you know, cheap, easily accessible, flows well, easy to teach, and we'll see how this new Car Wars, you know, makes it when it comes out, but until then, Gaslands is the way to go. Absolutely. It's probably my most played tabletop miniatures rule set over the course of the past year. 
I've been having a reasonably good year in terms of tabletop miniatures. And the other thing about Gaslands that, for whatever reason, I don't do with others' minis games is I feel like I have more latitude to experiment in Gaslands. Other miniatures games, I find out that the set of tactics that I enjoy working in, I just keep doing that over and over, and I'm fine doing that. But Gaslands, I'll try a new sponsor, I'll try new, I'll try a new rig setup, or what have you, just to see what happens. And one of the designers of Gaslands, namely Mike Hutchison, will be coming out with a billion stars over the course of this year, also being put up by Osprey Publishing. And I'm very much looking forward to that. On the Facebook group for a billion stars, I've been seeing these marvelous kit bashing DIY approaches to building a Starfleet or a bunch of, of starships. I've seen people, the most impressive of this was somebody came up with a, a very, very good looking fleet of ships that were built almost entirely out of drywall anchors just done up slightly. It's marvelous. People have been letting their creativity fly, and it's, it's absolutely wonderful, which, again, is a reminder that most of the people in the Gaslands community, it looks like, are fundamentally modelers and kit bashers, which I am emphatically not. I will take... See, this is my approach to building a, a car for Gaslands. What I do is I take the packaging... I take off the blister and then I put the car on the table. That is my my Ooh. that is how I modify my cars. Hardcore. So that they absolutely. But you know, you gotta have the dedication. It's true. Keep your eye on the price. Yeah, my love for Gaslands is undiminished. I think it remains an excellent, excellent rule set, and Gaslands Refueled has just been going from strength to strength. Absolutely love it. And that is the game we reviewed last year, Gaslands. Now on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you play this week? I got to play Blue Moon. I haven't played Blue Moon in a while. We played the original Cosmos Tarot-sized Blue Moon set. Played a couple of games back-to-back. Blue Moon remains my favorite two-player card game, my favorite card-battling game, and just my favorite two-player game in general. All things being equal, if somebody who knows how to play the game is available, I will play Blue Moon at the drop of a hat. It is very much, like a lot of other Reiner Knizia games, deceptively deep. It looks simple. A lot of people on Board Game Geek hate Blue Moon. A lot of people introduced to the game hate Blue Moon. And I'm somewhat sympathetic, because if you don't have a chance to see what's going on in the hood, it looks rather simplistic. It is not. It is absolutely dizzying in its its possible combinations, and that is even before you get into the context of deck building. Blue Moon is essentially an auction game masquerading as a card battling game, and it is all about how much of your deck's precious resources are you willing to devote to winning a pot whose value can change the longer the fight goes on, and that's the, the key thing. So, retreating before you get to the tipping point because you know you're going to lose, very much like Air, Land, and Sea. That's one of the things that I really appreciated about that design, and and Blue Moon, in a, in a way, is very much similar, but with a greater degree of depth and variety. Uh, and, of course, a, a commensurate increase in, in rules explanation and playing time. But I think it's very much worth it. The only downside to Blue Moon is, and this was very nostalgic, uh, Blue Moon I started playing not too long after I entered, uh, entered the hobby for the first time in a serious way. And one of the Blue Moon people's decks, specifically the Mimics, was the very first time in board gaming where I looked at uh, representations of women and said, uh, this is juvenile and embarrassing. So I got to have those kind of nostalgic feelings again because my opponent at one point wanted to play the mimics and so we would we would sort of evaluate the mimics on a sliding scale of really uh this person should have been presented differently to this isn't so terrible that's about as good as <laughs> actually no there's some cards in the the mimics deck that are great there's one card that represents uh, a pregnant woman engaging in in a ritual and you know presents someone who's very very visibly pregnant in a position of power and that part is great but anyway 
<coughs> the Mimics deck otherwise is occasionally very lamentable. They, uh, they, they need a little bit more clothing or perhaps to be presented in a slightly different way. It's, it's just a little bit too much uh, titillation and eye candy than, than I'd like overall. But anyway, Blue Moon is a fabulous game. If you can get your hands on the omnibus edition called Blue Moon Legends put up by Fantasy Flight not too long ago, I highly recommend it. And that was my experience with Blue Moon. I finally got to play Barrage. Barrage is one of these new Euro games that, that just came out last year, and it is water flowing down and trying to manipulate that water and trying to change that water into energy and trying to get the most energy every turn. I feel as though it can definitely break down into like a puzzly type game where you can sort of figure out because of because the the power generation is static because it's not randomized and you can sort of say, I'm going to do this for, and because it has this very interesting wheel system and it's like a closed economy, you're going to be paying certain uh, resources for buildings and they fall into your wheel and then the wheel turns and you can, every time you build, the wheel will turn and you can take actions that make the wheel turn faster and then you'll get those resources back. And I'm not saying it's a puzzly game to make it sound negative or bad, but I mean, it's, it's definitely something I feel as though you can, plan out many turns ahead or even have a whole strategy for your whole game but it is very fierce especially two-player it's very you know in your face and has very much a lot of interaction because you're stealing water from people you're blocking them from getting water they have some very interesting everyone has different abilities so that's very interesting as well i had no i we got to play the the retail version and i had no problems with the particular you know, flimsiness or any of the quality of the pieces. I thought everything was great. We had the frogs and the spaceships, so all was good. Just for some context here, <laughs> normally when Walker talks about resources being called something else, in this case, I'm very much with him. When I was taught the game, I was told, okay, some of these are concrete mixers and some of these are excavators, but I can't remember which one's which, so we're just going to call them frogs and starships. And that is very much what they look like. I don't remember which one's which either, but those are the two resources that you use to build buildings, and that is the only way that I remember them, so there's that. Yeah, Barrage is... It was it was pretty good two-player. I would prefer it with more. Three or four, I think, is where it's at. But you're right. It's very vicious. It's very cutthroat, because the, the overall supply of water that you're going to have, even if everyone's going producing as much water as they can through the limited actions available, there's not enough to go around. And so it becomes very cutthroat in terms of using water before someone else can or building a dam so that you can control the water and someone else can't. And that's one of the reasons why I like it. If you're going to do a worker placement game, which Barrage fundamentally is, you'd better have some way to introduce the direct competition and make things tight. So in addition to all this competition over water, you're competing over building spaces. There are tempo considerations every round. It's, it's great. I'm really enjoying Barrage. I wish it were a little bit shorter, just in terms of being able to play it more. I think it's one of those two-and-a-half to three-hour Euro games that actually warrants its length, which is high praise indeed. But getting it to the table is a little bit more difficult by virtue of knowing how long it's going to take. And two-player wasn't its best, but I don't think it suffered a tremendous deal. We have the expansion to Barrage incoming, and I'm looking forward to seeing what that uh, that has, because apparently the designers designed it with the expansion in mind and then started chopping bits out to get to the base game. And the base game is already... I would say, rather meaty in terms of its options and permutations. And so I'm very interested to see what their original kitchen sink design looked like. And so... And I think they did a great job of all the actions. All the actions seems very important. There's not like that one action that seems, you know, omni-powerful like another game we might or might not talk about soon. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes, Barrage is great. Looking forward to playing it soon. Oh, and it was designed by... 
Tommaso Batista and Simone Luciani. And who put that game out, Mark? Cranio Creations. Nice. What else did you play this week? Played Corporate America. Corporate America is one of my favorite light negotiation games. This was put out by Nothing Sacred Games in 2013, and then they came up with an updated version called The Gilded Age with some updated political jokes, because this is very much a game that is a satire about American politics and American corporate jockeying. And I think the satire is on point. I think the negotiation is tight, and it has what you need in a, in a negotiation game as far as I'm concerned, which is to say asymmetry that leads to different valuations of different things and different actions and the ability to haggle over small transactions. And so as a result, as I've said before, what you have is a relatively simple game that can last as long as you want it to. The length is extremely flexible and there's lots of cause for haggling and negotiation. Now, I don't know if it is sufficiently demanding of negotiation or at least sufficiently open to negotiation that would prompt even someone like a Michael Walker to actually open his mouth during a negotiation game. Impossible. But I've definitely seen other people that are not particularly uh, vocal or active in other contexts immediately get into the free-willing nature of corporate America. So corporate America has been a regular mainstay since I discovered it a few years ago, and I'm a huge fan, and I will... I, I love negotiation games, and for me, the big challenge is just finding one that other people are enthusiastic about as I am. But Corporate America seems to have its fans. So You know, you know what? The funny thing is, I'm sure all the listeners understand why I don't enjoy negotiation games. Just from listening to this podcast, because the moment I try to open my mouth, you either, you know, either edit me out, talk over me, or just shout me down. So that's probably why they understand why I don't like negotiation Who games. Who was it that inserted a, a random mini-topic so that is I, completely so beyond the bounds of our normal agenda? I got to play a game called Papillion. We're going to call it the Butterfly Game, just because for now it is the only Butterfly Game out. I can, we can't call it the Butterfly Game. There's, the other one's not out yet, Mark. For, so, for but it's all that, look, it's by Elizabeth Hargrave, the designer of the greatest game of all time, exclamation point, 11T1TM, specifically Wingspan, which is the absolute most genius creation that has ever met uh, God's Green Earth. And so, but now we have two different games about butterflies called Butterfly in a different language. Instead, I'm going to talk about Papillion, though. This is a game by J.B. Howell. Papillion is where we're settling on? We're going to settle on that one today. And it's by J.B. Howell. And we were just talking about how many games he put out last year, which is kind of weird. He put out Papillion, he put out Reavers of Midgard, and he put out Flotilla, all games that we've played in the last couple of months. So I thought that was pretty impressive of Mr. Howell. Anyway, back to Papillion. It was exactly what I wanted. It was a very interesting tile lane game. So if anyone's into uh, like Carcassonne or any of those type of games, you'll fall right into this. You're going to be drafting these tiles. You're going to be making your own little flower beds and gardens and fields. And then as soon as you complete one, as in close it all in on all sides, and you get to you know clip these butterflies on these 3D giant flower stand-up things. There is no weight to this game really, per se. But still, it looks stunningly amazing. It has little mini uh, clothespin butterflies, and it has uh, very interesting uh, expansions that I'm looking forward to trying out later. What did you think of it, Mark? It's a beautiful game. The components are very, very attractive. The little flower stains on which you clip your little butterflies are wonderful. I took my clothespin butterflies. I put one on my sleeve. I put one on my glasses. I put a couple on my hair. I felt very pretty. Walker refused to call me pretty, and then I was very sad. But I was very disappointed, first of all, that the flower stands are, in point of fact, anti-functional. Because it would be easier to clock who's going to score what if you just put, say, cubes in a pile or something. But instead, you get to 
clip your little butterflies onto these stands, and the stands are lovely to look at, but make it harder to easily visually identify how many who has what. I'm willing to forgive it though, based on how cute it is. We played with two, and with two, it cuts out the auction for start player. And it also means that there's only one set of flowers. And what that does is it reduces the option for the area majority contest. Because whenever you get to, say, place a butterfly in blue, you have no choice about where it goes. It just goes on a stand. And so to that that extent, I think at two-player, it is at its manifold worst. It's a very quick game. There were some weird things with start player as well with with two players. But I liked it. The drafting of the tiles that you then place is pretty bone-simple. And the placement of the tiles is also pretty bone simple, but it's got some issues of positioning and kind of like Carcassonne, how long can I, how how sprawling can I make this field? There's an interesting element as well, whereby you're sometimes incentivized to make fields very, very small and score them quickly. And sometimes you just want them to sprawl. So that, that was great. I thought that was very interesting. I would love to play it with three or four. I was very pleasantly surprised. I was not expecting anything at all. And I was kind of delighted by the visuals. And I thought that the gameplay was diverting. Yes. So nothing stunning, no. but in terms of being able to carry off its its whimsical theme along with all the consistency of the graphic design, I was I was pl- very pleased with my experience with Papillon. Sorry, Papillon. Papillon. And I, w- I, I wish they had uh, done a little bit, like you said, a little bit more with the flowers, like where you're putting your butterflies made it like a mini dexterity game. Not really. Well, I just but, would have liked... My initial intuition was, if you've got a flower stand, th- this lovely little cardboard thing with five little cardboard flowers that are that are mounted on these branches i assumed you could only ever have one butterfly on a given branch so there was this issue of timing and there was issue of getting there sooner maybe an issue possibly later on with some sort of weird effect of dislodging somebody but no you can have any number of butterflies on any number of things and so it's purely just a cosmetic element as i say i'm not gonna begrudge something for just having that cosmetic element but the fact that it had zero gameplay dividends was a mild disappointment what else did you play this week, Mark? Played a game of Secret Hitler. I put out a re-review of Secret Hitler on the, the Patreon th- feed. Suffice to say, every time I play Secret Hitler, I like it less. I've now played it a bunch. It is our local group's favorite social deduction game. And I love social deduction games, but Secret Hitler, oh my goodness, is not a particularly good instantiation of social deduction. Precisely because most social deduction games of the modern mold, and by this I even include things like Werewolf and Mafia, the bad guys, by virtue of their numerical inferiority, have to be very careful about when and how they exert power. And the trick is, especially for new players, it is difficult to know when to exert that power. But that's part of the game. Secret Hitler looks at that kind of meta, looks at that arrangement and say, oh, maybe we should add on a random element whereby sometimes when the bad guys have to make their move, they can't because the random deck screws them over. And this is exactly what happened in our game. It also happened to a new player. And it was the kind of thing where I just sort of reconstructed the draws and figured out what on earth could anyone have done to reverse this? There was no opportunity to get any cover at any point for this particular game. It more or less played itself. Which is fine, I guess. I mean, most social deduction games, even when they fall apart, I talked about this in the context of The Menace Among Us, can be relatively pleasant if it evokes a sense of paranoia and accusation and counter-accusation and discussion about who did what and why. It's just, I miss living in a city where the Resistance was the preferred social deduction game. The extent to which the Resistance is superior to Secret Hitler is massive. And... Sometimes you just have degenerate sessions, and this was a degenerate session, and it was unsatisfying. And so that was yet another reason to think that Secret Hitler is not a particularly good social deduction game. 
All right, both you and I got to play Reavers of Midgard. Like I said, it was by J.B. Howell, put out by Gray Fox Games. It finally came in. It's sort of the sister game of Champions of Midgard. It rode in on its game trays. Yes, it did, on its flimsy game trays and got here with just enough left to be destroyed in a great unboxing video. That being said, it does share some things with Champions of Midgard. You're going out, you're killing giant beasts, you're, uh, you're hunting, you're collecting food, you're collecting these corruption and or terror and or troll tokens. There's a lot of graphic oh, similarities. Yeah, there's also like the runes where you're going to get all these multipliers to your victory points at the end. So it's a lot of, it's very similar. There are some, you know, drastic differences though. Whereas now you're picking four actions a turn and everyone follows on those actions and there's bonuses to those actions based on, you know, if you took it or if you're later in the turn. It's role selection rather than worker placement. Yeah, and then there's one, and then much like champions, there's this giant point pinata at the end of the game where everyone rockets up, you know, the victory point track where I think we started, I think we ended the game around 75, but our total scores were at around 175. By that sounds about right. And... I played it three player and two player so far, and I think I'm liking it less and less each time I play it because I'll allude to it first. I really feel as though they didn't very much, they didn't balance out the spaces as much as they should. There's definitely two spaces that were the go to in our game. It was like the obvious answer. There's these territory uh, tiles that you can either pay off or attack, and depending on how many you have. You're going to score that many points at the end of every round of which there's six and it seems as though it's the go-to area because not only are you scoring those victory points but on the back of these tiles there's you know all sorts of loot that you're going to get that it just makes it infinitely better than all the other spaces so there's two problems let's talk about that space there are two problems with that space number one the problem is as you say it's the obvious choice if you get three tiles in the first round that's 18 points and in a game, granted, 118 out of 175 isn't huge, but that's a pretty significant score for something that's pretty obvious to do in your first round. The second problem is, as we said, it's a role selection game. So I choose a, I choose a thing to do, and then everyone else has the option to follow. Normally in role selection games, and I have honestly, I haven't played a good role selection game since the old Marcel André Castasola Merkel card games, since even Puerto Rico. Because Puerto Rico, say whatever you want about Puerto Rico, it at least got the role selection right. It mattered who picked what and when. In Champions of Midgard, this granted this was run midway through round one. I started looking at the action space and saying, okay, well, if I go here, I get to do this, and Walker gets to do this. Okay, if I go here, I get to do this, and Walker gets to do this. Oh, wait, here's this other space where if I get to do something three times, and Walker gets to do something once, as opposed to this other space where I get to do something and get a two-point bonus, and then Walker gets to do the exact same thing after I do it. Hmm, one of those makes a better seems like a better call. So in a sense, it doesn't matter how powerful the action is. The point is, every time I place a place a, an, an action, I care about the difference between what I get to do and what you get to do. And when two of the actions have a threefold multiplier over what my opponent gets to do, well, then those are the obvious actions to take. And sure enough, maybe this was just groupthink. That's exactly what happened in our two-player game. Every single round, every single round, those two actions are the first to go. And... I would take one of them and you would take the other, depending on who was the start player. And of course, one of those actions did give you the start player token. So that made it even more obvious. And so the, the dynamic was just scripted and stilted. That was the first major package of problems with the game. You identified as well something else that I found problematic, which was just how incredibly fiddly a lot of the procedures were. You want to talk about that for a bit? Well, it just seems like a lot of what I usually say busy work. It's like you're you know, you know know rolling these dice, putting them on your ship, spending these resources... 
in order to get more resources back. And then at the end of every one of these six rounds, you're clearing all the cards off, dealing out all these cards again, of which there's like, you know, eight different spaces that are going to have cards. It just seemed like an awful lot of work for such a little return. I think you're under you're you're underselling how bad it was, honestly, because you can build up these bonuses through the underused eponymous Reavers of Midgard. I was actually strangely disappointed by how little the Reavers mattered in point of fact. Part of that was because if I go and get Reavers, everyone else gets Reavers too, so why should I bother wasting my time to go do this action to help everybody else out pretty much as well as I'm helped out? But if say I go to an action. This, this is a common turn. I go to an action. Well, that immediately triggers a bonus I have, which enables me to draw some cards. Oh, well, one of these cards says I get resources. This other card says I get resources, and then I can spend some of those resources to get something else. Okay, well, that involves me rolling some dice. Okay, I succeeded in rolling the dice. That gets me some stuff. Okay, now these cards go into my discard pile. I haven't even started the action yet. And this is a common procedure. And that's and, just you. And that's just you know, me. All the other players get to do that too. And they, Well, they get to sit and wait and watch me do all this before they go. And then I actually do the thing which might involve more influx of cards, which in turn have these nested conditionals in them. And I get the... Look, it wasn't just a, a point pinata. It's just the, the game is constantly spewing all these resources at you. And number one, I prefer it when your games are a little bit tighter in terms of the resources. Fine, that's just a personal preference thing. But number two, it made everything so inconsequential because you're just constantly being bombarded with stuff. And so it did end up feeling like busy work. If nothing's hard to come by, you're just spending all this time manipulating all these things to do some, something that doesn't really matter because all of these are the secondary actions anyway because there's two important actions on the board because they're the way you actually get advantage over your opponents. Anyway, I found it overall tiresome and tedious entirely in a different way from Champions of Midgard, so there's that. I gotta say, this game makes me appreciate Champions of Midgard a whole lot more because the most I had against Champions of Midgard was that it was uninspired and didn't use its theme very well. Reavers adds to that by being, I think, pretty poorly designed. So, yay! Yay, win-win. Yay for Champions of Midgard. On, on a side note, I'm going to just do a little positive. On the Reavers themselves, I really feel just that side part of the game. Unfortunately, the rest of the game takes away everything about it, but the Reaver cards themselves are like a multi-use card, right? You can use them three different ways. You can have one as a leader or get instant dice from them or like you said you slide them under your board which just enhances enhances the actions unfortunately like you said that just leads to more downtime but i think on in on itself is a very interesting game mechanism yeah the, the reavers were borderline cute but and it really gave me a role for the galaxy feel where it had all these very cool dice that that gave you the feel like they mattered like when you heard the rule book that you really needed to roll certain things and 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 use them in a certain way but Long story short, there were so many modifiers and ways to change them and ways to get things that you need anyway. What dice you got really didn't matter. That's pretty fair. The color mattered more than what was actually on the die face. Agreed. Which is something. That was Reavers of Midgard. By Grey Fox Games. Finally, I don't know how much Walker's going to have to say about this, but we got to play Cthulhu Death May Die. I played the full version of Cthulhu Death May Die. Walker played the abbreviated, expedited, five-minute version. This is how you play the five-minute version. The way it happens is, first you get the rules explanation, you get to pick your character, and you get to slot everything out. You get to take one turn, then you leave, and then you come back for the last turn, where the two other players tell you, oh, by the way, you're in the same space as the great old one, you're about to die, and then you die. So what was your experience of the shortened five-minute version of Cthulhu Death May Die? Best game ever. Yeah, I can't imagine that Walker had much... <laughs> positive experience you seemed actually strangely okay with how things shook out i guess it's because you you know when you leave for most of the middle of the game you accept that it's going to be weird well not just that just that you and i have both expressed 
being fatigued on this particular genre. Yes. The, the all versus one game. I'm fatigued on the dice pooling game. But when the rules explanation was given to me and the way I was seeing things were working out and the fact that I really did enjoy the others. But like you said, it really hindered your movement and, and made that fiddly and, and way more handcuffing than it, it really should have been. Where this one, if you just move, they come with you. I believe they do that in uh, Hellboy as well. Uh, they either move with you or you take a wound. Exactly. Right. So then they make it easy, shrink it down. And I think I think I was just looking forward to playing it more. <laughs> as in at all? As in at all. Yes. No, I, I agree with you. Cthulhu Death May Die, very much like Hellboy. And it, it's much more stripped down than Hellboy, but it's very much in the same sort of design theory. How much can we get rid of to keep this experience tight and visceral? And it's a very short game which is great. Uh, the most time-consuming part is indeed setting up the map, but it's not tedious at all. It doesn't take too long. It, it, it's pretty straightforward. The only, And you're right. It's very much like The Other Seven Sins. It's extremely reminiscent of that game. I wish it had the element of The Other Seven Sins where you were constantly rotating out different characters. This person dies, so you bring in someone else, and they're expendable too. I feel that would have fit with the theme of Cthulhu Death May Die very, well, uh, very nicely as well, because, again, it has this borderline comical image of these are crazy hard cases who are doing something dumb and they are n- nothing is going to end well. And I really appreciated that sort of take on it. And so I would have appreciated if they go that extra distance of being able to cycle out characters because the, the, the repertoire of characters you have, even in the base game without any stretch goals or any expansions, is a lot. But with that minor proviso, I think that Clue Death May Die is really a refinement and an improvement over the others in every way. A theme possibly accepted. That's, and title. And title. <laughs> yes. At that point, it's just a, a strict preference thing. Uh, so I am definitely looking forward to showing you the game again, and maybe this time you'll actually play it. We can only hope. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark. Asmodee bought something. Ah, uh, what's what's new? Uh, they bought uh, Repo Production, which is a Belgian producer that has been in the business for quite a while. I remember them first from the, their publishing of Ghost Stories and Cash and Guns. I really like a lot of their output. It is a shame to see them go by the wayside, as in be swallowed up by the Asmodee behemoth. So many more. Yeah. So, Mark, there are not many times that a word can be used so perfectly to describe something. So the word today is going to be smooth, right? (laughs) Just picture lying down on a sheet of glass that goes on endlessly forever and you just look across this completely smooth surface or a pond that's completely... And is is Barry White talking to me? Yeah, Barry White. It's so... This is the word that I'm going to use to describe Simon's time machine (laughs) launch today. So needless to say, I stood up for them. All of our predictions or all of my predictions came true. Yes, we we that this would be a disaster right from the get go. It's true. You're right. Because even just the registration alone to register your login name crashed the server. Yes. So lo and behold, the server crashed immediately today when when they opened up the Simon Time Machine Kickstarter project. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see what happens. On Kickstarter news. I have two very big Kickstarters that I'd like to talk about. The first one is called Oath, Chronicles of Empire and Exile. And why do we care about Oath? Because it's done by the same people that did Root. It's designed by Cole Worley and put up in later, later games, I think. I don't really have much faith in later games, but Cole Worley is absolutely someone to watch, and he looks like he's doing something interesting. And the artwork is stupendous as it is in Root. Yes. Right now, it is at 
$766,000 with 9,100 backers. So it's well on its way. The second one is Foundations of Rome, mostly because it just looks amazingly beautiful. It seems to play very similarly to Big City, but has a little bit more gameplay and is a little heavier than Big City. And there's a lot more different types of buildings, if not you know, they all do the same sort of thing, but the look of the buildings is much different. And I think once it's all out, it'll look even better than uh, Big City does. And it's uh, almost as expensive as Big City is. But that being said, it is also at $370,000 with 2,800 backers. This is a game put out by Emerson Musucci and Arcane Wonders. So Breakout, you've been you've been to Breakout oh, to before, Breakout, yes, yes yeah, in yeah, Toronto. Yeah, yeah. You're a big fan of Breakout. I've always kind of sort of wanted to go, but never really had a good reason to. It's uh, Early registration is now open. The Breakout is going to be in Toronto from March 20th to 22nd, so support local cons. Agreed. It's a great time. They have a huge role-playing scene there and board games. They've recently moved to a much bigger hotel, and they have people doing, like, demo and... And it's game-focused rather than retail-focused, which is... Exactly. My last bit of news is we talked about Star Realms... Because Star Realms is now back on Kickstarter, and we sort of had a little laugh about the fact that we, I felt, and Mark did as well, that Star Realms was great because it came in one pack, one pack for two players. You want four players, you buy two packs, you, you put it on the table. That's cheap, all you, qu- cheap, quick, and cheap, cheerful. Cheap, quick, and cheerful. But now it's a grandiose, huge box with all the you know expansions and promos and Kickstarter extras. So now it's going to take this you know, extra retail space up in your, on your shelf. And I don't know if it has the same feel as it used to. It seems like a strange impulse to, to, to blow it up, but you know, that's what Kickstarter is for, right? Got to find a way to justify. Well, that, and you know, the people that want it will get it and the people yep. that don't won't. But, it's true. But I, I, I just feel the as glory old, of capitalism. I just feel that that's what Star Realms was in its core. Nice, basic, simple, mm-hmm. quick and done on to the next thing. Finally, a bit of follow-up from last time. I talked about how Pascal Bernard, the designer of Time of Legends, Joan of Arc, uh, was having a bit of a public kerfuffle with Mythic Games, who published it, him claiming that he had not been paid royalties and that he had not been consulted for the release of version 1.5. And the French Société des Auteurs de Jeux and the Union des Éditeurs de Jeux, which basically means the uh, Society of Board Game Authors, has uh, publicly commented now on this very public dispute between a French designer and a French company. And they have said, look, this is a complicated situation. We don't really know all, we're not privy to all the details, and we're certain that this is going to be wending its way through the courts. But they said two things, one of which is entirely uncontroversial, and one of which I think is actually an interesting position that I don't necessarily know I agree with. The uncontroversial one is, they said, authors should be paid for their work, and contracts should be respected. Wow. I know. Man, that's reaching. Hot take. Way to stick your neck out on that one, especially as an organization of game designers. Controversial. Yes. The second one is, they said, and this is a direct quote, any rules modification made by the publisher must be approved by the author. And that is an interesting standard. Now, on the one hand, there's the less controversial version of it, which is that a game designer has the right to pull their name from anything they don't want to stand behind. You know, the Alan Smithy version is the equivalent in films, right? If you as a designer submit a game to a publisher and the publisher changes it, you should have the right, just on a simple free speech banner, say, I don't want my name associated with this project anymore, for whatever reason. Whether it's a theme change or rules change or whatever. That is uncontroversial, I think. Agree. We can agree. Right of freedom of association, right of expression, things like that. 
here I'm talking moral rights, not legal rights. Calm down. But the notion that the publisher needs to get consent of the author to make any changes whatsoever, that's a little bit stronger, and that's a different position. Now, I'm saying I'm not saying I necessarily disagree with it. I think that it's a strong claim, and I'm not sure if I would go that far. Because we've had a number of instances where, for example, a version has been published, and then the second edition has been entirely retouched by somebody else. Either another contract worker or somebody else in a company. I mean, granted, this is often for companies like Fantasy Flight that have in-house designers and things like that. I'm not necessarily sure that Pascal Bernard should or should not have the right to say to Mythic Games, okay, in version 1.5, I have complete editorial control over what rules get changed and what rules don't. That is an interesting discussion, and I'm not sure what my position is. I just thought that it was a, it was a striking statement to make from the, the Société, and I just wanted to call attention to it. Yeah, no, I, I'd be totally against that. The way I the way I feel, I have no idea how it actually goes down, Mark. But the way I feel it goes down is that as a designer, you present your idea to the publisher. They say, yes, this is a great idea. And you sort of work with them and, you know, work through some of the rules and you sort of hand it over to them. They go through, you know, like a... Presumably some sort of editorial process, editorial process internally. And they, you know, redesign it and rework it. They are the ones taking the risks at publishing it out and all the money. The, there's no risk to to the designer whatsoever. Well, their, their risk is a sunk cost, right? They've already taken the risk. They've already spent the labor. Yeah, but they have decided to work with this publisher. No, no, no I hear you. I'm just I'm just pushing back on the notion that gotcha. the no, no, pu- no, that the so designer has, has has shouldered no risk. And then, and then I feel as though once the the publisher is co- the publisher is completely finished, they present the rules to the designer, say this is what we're going to go with. They have the opportunity to say, well, I don't want my name associated with it. They still get paid for all their work and whatever, but they can say they don't want their name on it. But And then the publisher can can publish it. I, As I say, I'm sympathetic to that position. I'm also sympathetic to the position expressed by the Société. I just don't know. The, the, the biggest example to me is the instance of the publication of Tower of Babel. But, of course, Rainer Knizia is the kind of individual who works with so many different publishers and has so many different kinds of publishing arrangements that, for him, I'm sure he has very clear standards for what he will and will not accept. But what happened with Tower of Babel was he submitted a design, and the publisher, Hansem Gluck, made significant rules changes, some of which were fabulous and, I think, make the game work, and another bucket which were absolutely terrible and need to be burned in some sort of public bonfire. I'm referring on the in the first instance to getting points for a refused offer. That was introduced by the publisher after the design was submitted. In Rennickens' design, if you have an offer refused, nothing happens to you. And then there are the bonus cards, which are absolutely nightmarishly terrible, which the publisher introduced there. Now, when they have decided, when Hans and Glick have decided, this is now our version of Tower of Babel, I definitely agree that whatever happens right now, should we say, don't put my name on the box. But I'm sympathetic to both the position that, well, at least I'm open to be persuaded by both positions. On the one extreme, he gets to say nothing about those changes. And on the other extreme, he can then say, no, 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 roll it back to the original version and publish that. I'm not sure. I just think it's an interesting topic. Agreed. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. So, on to our topic which is 2020 New Year's resolutions, as we have done in years past. We are going to start by looking back at the resolutions we made at the start of 2019, and we are going to reflect on how we are unable to follow through on any of our life plans at all. So, Walker, what were some of the 
resolutions that we made at the top of the year. Well, I said that I was going to do video editing again and get back into doing some videos. I didn't think that that was a good idea, so I'm glad that you didn't do that. I didn't do that. You have, however, it's worth noting, even at the time, I used the term avant-garde to refer to your unboxing videos. I'm glad that you've kept up with that. This is true. I guess they've gotten more avant-garde. I I noticed that with your your recent one of Reavers of Midgard, where you literally destroy some of the components as you're filming it, this is your futurist phase. Yes. Don't limit me, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) One of my other ones was the Grand Giveaway. Yes. And it went well. I, I, I... thought up all sorts of different ways to do it, whether it was going to be a contest or submit names or, and I thought the best way to do it that, that would keep track of everything and keep everything fair was just to put it all up on auction and start at zero, except for some things that were obviously either, you know, ridiculously rare or whatever, and just to keep it honest. But even then the starting bid was very low and by the end of it, I did two very large auctions and I sold a uh, 195 games out of my collection. We are still in the business of giving away games. We're in the process of sending games to some of our Patreon supporters at no cost to them. And that's going really well. We still enjoy doing it. Uh, We're just doing it on on a slightly different scale. So, I mean, your primary motivation, which is to say to get rid of all this stuff, definitely succeeded. So... Even though it didn't turn out to be a giveaway per se, you, you you did end up shipping it all out, so that was great. And a lot of swaggers did get very good deals in the process, so that was that was nice. You also wanted to improve the audio quality and presentation of our uh, humble offering, and I have to say, I think over the course of the past year, the audio quality. Speaking primarily for myself, because I'm the one who does the editing. I think we've held to a pretty high and consistent level of audio quality, and so I'm very pleased with how we've been doing on that score. I agree. We have a super high-tech uh, studio. Yes. When we give Harry and Megan the tour, I'm sure they'll approve. Yes. It's very royal. And my last but not least one was to stop being bullied. Yeah, I noticed you put that down. Unfortunately, that has not happened. I still cry myself to sleep once one night every week. You are the only one that of this team that gets to ignore stated formats and just talk about whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want to. See, I have to right alter here. the way see, I talk about games to, to, to mollify you. I have to talk about whatever topic you feel like talking about, regardless <laughs> of whether this was discussed in advance or whether there's any prep. I have to rigidly follow the first we do good points and then we do bad. We can't connect things conceptually because that would be too wild. <sighs> Mommy. So... I had a resolution to go back to some of the games of fun paperwork, mentioning specifically Gloomhaven and Kingdom Death. I have not done that. However, I have found a better outlet for fun paperwork, and that is a lot of new indie miniatures rule sets. Games like Rangers of Shadow Deep, games like Zero Dark, actually, which is a new uh, miniatures game in beta by Roby Jenkins, which is super, super fun and promising in terms of its development. Because they have a level of overhead that I think is just right. It's just what I'm looking for. Just enough to give me a sense of overarching narrative, but not so much that I feel like I'm managing some sort of dossier full of details and and stuff where I have to remember what my scrawled note actually meant. Uh, Same is true of The King's Dilemma. Very, very small amount of overhead giving you that same level of of ongoing sense. So I, I... I'm willing to call that that one a win. I have returned back to fun paperwork, but I've just found a better outlet for it. As ever, I say every year that I want to play more two-player uh, card battling games, and I never do. 
Got to play Blue Moon recently, which was wonderful, but still don't play enough Sakura Arms, still don't play enough Airland and Sea, don't play enough Battlecon, don't play enough of, of, of Exceed. I do not play when enough of say Underworld is a, is a two-player card battling game? It's close. It's close. Well, I, I predict there might be a lot of that next year with this digital version coming out. All right, well, let's, uh, you know me in digital versions. I do not, I do not well, like them as much. We'll see. I also wanted to do more event games. You know, the kind of game where it's like, okay, this is going to last three to five hours. We need to set a time. And I did this zero times last year. It was embarrassing and painful. I, I completely failed to do that. Finally, there's the sort of implied resolution that we have every year, which is to be good ambassadors for the hobby. I, I, I'm actually going to say that this time I think I kind of sort of did... Well, I, I did a much better job than I did in, in previous years. Uh, for one thing, I only issued sustained shouts of, of pejoratives and insults, I think only once. And honestly, in my defense, they deserved it. They came back anyway. So, hey, there's that. And I will say I'm willing to take credit for converting a miniatures gamer. He's now also a board gamer, too. I will call this individual Chip the Third. I think Ch- I'm willing to claim Chip the Third's participation in the hobby as a win for my ambassadorial efforts. Well, I want to go back to the events that you talked about. Did we not that civilization game? Was that over a year ago? I thought we yes. Big, okay. So, <laughs> we played. So that being said, that wasn't what I was going to go back to. What I'm going to go back to is the fact that we traveled seven hours by plane across our vast country to attend Shucks this year, and I think that's a pretty big event. It is. I thought that was a pretty big thing. No, no, no it was uh, okay. Yes. In the sense that it was an event and there was gaming, it was event gaming. But what I mean is I didn't do a good job of... Oh, okay. I did schedule a session of Durant's there. And that was a sort of, you know, we're going to spend three hours doing this very specific thing. There we go. It was, okay, you're right. You're right. I, I did do one thing last year under the, under the aegis of, of, of quote-unquote, event gaming. So there's that. So that was what we talked about last year. So what are we going to talk about this year? What will we fail at for 2020? Well, I have a bunch of things here. I have actual predictions that I have down here. Are you predictions? I do have some predictions. Okay. Well, we have been... So some of the things are that we've been constantly talking about doing an omnibus episode where we have all of these topic ideas that we feel are too small to actually talk about and or games that we feel that we haven't covered enough in our games played this week but aren't quite big enough to do a full show on. This is the first time hearing about this. That's a lie, and you know it. So hopefully we'll get an omnibus uh, episode out this year. I'm also interested in seeing uh, the metamorphosis of our local gaming stores. Not us in particular, just gaming stores in general, because now they're being uh, like escape room slash game stores, lounges type, you know. And I think as though there's going to be some some new types of stuff coming out that are going to draw this new crowd of people in. Another thing I'm very interested in seeing that there's this conflict, right? There's something between uh, more people playing board games because they want to get away from their screens, whereas there's a push to do this integration of phones into the board game. So there's this constant push and pull. So I'm seeing how that, I'm interested to see how that's going to be played out. And I want to try to figure out, for you listeners there, I want to know what kind of content that you want that you don't know you want yet. (laughs) <laughs> that being said, you know, I'm just saying I don't want to be like other creators out there that I've seen that they do they do like polls, like what what do you want to see us do next? Do you want us to get into video? Do you want us to do this? I want to I want to try to come up with something that's unique and different that people find interesting that they didn't realize they would find interesting. Okay, more power to you. I for one will keep using polls. I want to get back to 
taking more pictures again. Usually I would take all the pictures. Oh, that is true. Yeah, I've really failed the last few months doing that. I used to take pictures of everything I played. I want to get back to putting that up on Facebook. Uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse, Mark. Oh, yeah. We have both graduated our Sentinels of the Multiverse into these giant boxes. That being said, I want to specifically introduce more people to Sentinels of the Multiverse. I want to take this giant obelisk box out to our local gaming groups and get more people playing Sentinels of the Multiverse. Just because, you know, I want to figure out whether people like this Marvel Champions game just due to the fact that it is Marvel or the fact that they just enjoy playing terrible games. Well, we don't have any locals who play Marvel Champions games, so I, I don't necessarily know that there's a whole bunch of people ready to be converted from that specifically. But yeah, I'm, I'm always down for more Sentinels. So. And the other thing I want... Uh, the, our, our, our Facebook guild, our So Very Wrong About Games Facebook guild, is almost up to 1,000 members. I want to try to get more, uh, more presence on there for myself. I know I read everything there, but I want to interact more with the people there. I tend to not want to respond unless I think it's, you know, something that is adding more to the conversation. As that hasn't stopped you in the podcast. I, oh my goodness gracious. They wonder why I never say anything. Nailed it. <laughs> and the other, my last thing, I know I'm going through everything of mine here, but I. It would appear. None of these are my predictions. It's a shame yet. you're so bullied. And the last thing I want to do is you've seen this in the last few months is teaching more rules, right? Yes. I've sort of, uh, previous to six months ago, just sort of not done it anymore, just relied on Mark to do everything. And I really feel as though that I've let him down because not only does he have to edit this podcast, he has to read all of the rule books. He has to teach all of the games. He has to take all the flack from all the players when he teaches the games, like, Oh, you didn't tell me that. Or no, you didn't say it that way. No, that's not how you, you told me how it worked. No, you admitted that. Oh, you told us at the last minute. And that's when you, Huey, Dewey and Louie are actually speaking English and not engaging in guttural grunts and howls and slapping your buttocks. So I've been trying my hardest to get back into because I really did enjoy teaching games, so I'm getting back into that. I've been reading lots of rule books lately. And you know, you're pretty good at it, honestly. And that is all my general stuff. All your general stuff. Yes. Well, I will try to support you as best I can. I will no longer, for example, offer to read the rules of games that you have incoming because you did ask me to do that a couple times and then I started offering to do it and that, that's that's a degenerate impulse and I will stop doing it. And I will be as supportive as I can when you are teaching rules and I will definitely play Sentinels of the Multiverse with you whenever you want to, however you want to. Oh, sorry. Unless it's Oblivion, in which case, absolutely not. Hard pass. Uh, well, <laughs> you don't have to worry about that. Yes. So my resolutions for the coming year, some of them are trying to pick up on the failures of last year. I want to be less passive. Now, I, I realize this may sound a bit strange, especially since you always accuse me of being bullying. But in terms of two things, scheduling and game choice, in terms of scheduling, I really haven't taken the bull by the horns and saying, okay, I want to try to get people together because wrangling people is something that I find very tiresome and psychically draining. And as people who know what happened to me over the course of the, the end of 2019, I have run out of spoons for a lot of things. But I would like to get back in the habit of saying, okay, Megasiv, I'm going to try to marshal people for Megasiv or Cataclysm or the new version of Demacher, which actually the new version of Demacher doesn't look like it's going to take very long at all. But Time will tell. Maybe the old version of Demacher, if the new version of Demacher isn't very good. And uh, so that that's something I, I really, really want to get back into because there's all this sphere of games, primarily war games, but not just war games, that I just don't play anymore because the only way they're going to get played is if I take the initiative to organize an event. And that is something I just have to step up and do. 
And in terms of game choice as well, I come to every open game night with a bag full of games I really want to play. In point of fact, last time I did it, the bag was entirely full of wolf designer games. There was Warpgate, there was Guards of Atlantis 2, there was even Trickshot, just in case there's going to be a two-player game. And I didn't play any of them because when people are like, Mark, what'd you bring? If nobody follows up with, oh, I'd really like to try that, I'm usually just like, okay, well, what, what, what do other people want to play? And then we always end up playing the same stuff. You know, things that I've played so often I don't even need to bother about talking about a game's played last week or, or trash that I have no really interest in, but I'm, I'm happy to go along to get along. So I'd like to be like, all right, take out the box, put it on the table. Who would like to join me for this? Like presupposing that it's happening. You know, stuff like that. I'm really bad at that. I'm just, I'm not good. I don't, I'm a good little Canadian boy. I don't want to impose on anybody. I'll insult them to their face and scream at them, but I don't want to impose on their time. Well, this, I think because we're used to doing like social events where games might happen, might not happen. And yes. Then, and, and then, and so you don't want to force it. Whereas, exactly. Whereas we're now at a gaming night, games are going to happen. It's true. Let's try to make it this game. Well put, well put. Uh, as a corollary to this, I'd like to host more and drive less. I've got a pretty good gaming space in my home. If I do this in myself, I've got a great table. And I spend a lot of time just driving all over to different people. I spend all this time driving. I'm responsible now for so many lifts all the time. And it's okay because, look, more people in the hobby is good. And I like to facilitate people who don't have cars. Uh, but we don't have especially good public transport in our, our, our humble host city. But I'd like to host more and drive less. But at the same time... As kind of crawler to that, I would like to travel more. I didn't go to Massachusetts much. I drive to Massachusetts to visit my my old friends, and I get a lot of gaming there, and I see other games that I wouldn't see locally in Kingston. I didn't do that for a while. Again, end of 2019, not exactly friendly to long-distance travel. And there are friends elsewhere that I could go visit. I'm looking forward to trying to get over myself and do that a little bit more. So I, I want to drive less in Kingston, but be willing to go a little bit more to other cities. Maybe go to Toronto and visit some of my friends there. Or go to Montreal, visit people there. But that last time that happened, it didn't turn out so well. We'll see. So that's something I'd like to like to go doing forward. Finally, in terms of things I'd like to do going forward in terms of 2020, and this is sort of a, a broader collection shift is I'd like to accept that my games might be incomplete. So I have this nasty habit of the completionist bug kicking in real hard. I play a game, I like it, it's like, oh well there's you mean there's a there's a omnibus version that's twenty times as expensive and has three new playable characters. Well clearly I have to trade to get that one. And I, I think I'm doing okay. I'm, uh, my test case now is Commands and Colors Napoleonics, which is one of my favorite games. It's my favorite Commands and Colors game and therefore is one of my favorite games and I love the Napoleonic uh, the Napoleonic setting. I don't have the Austrians. I don't have the Epic expansion. And I'm just going to try being okay with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I sort of started that. There's two Kickstarters that I have going on right now that I, I didn't do the all-in. I'm just getting the base yeah. game, and that's it. Yeah. And actually, I, I meant to write this down, but I remember the years. I was just trying to think. I've had a Kickstarter going, Mark, since 2013. Okay. I've either, you know, either had one, you know, in the process of being fulfilled or, you know, at sure. the factory, you mean like I've been in, in Kickstarter with sure. one or many more projects since 2013. I thought that was just crazy. <laughs> well, given the time scale of a given project. That's true. But one, one could have been doing that and only pledged for a sum total of say three different games or maybe even just one or two game this, depending. So. This is true. Finally, though, I would like to, to manifest one of my longtime broadcasting desires. I would like to have an opportunity, doesn't matter how many other people are there, but with someone else there, 
to be able to ask my favorite rhetorical question, and that is, do you know who I am? I've never been able to do that. (laughs) I would like over the course of 2020 to find an opportunity to say, do you know who I am? Nice. I don't know how that's going to happen. And you know what? I know that that makes me a massive douchebag. I am willing to pay that price for the sake of, you know, ticking off something off your bucket list. Nice. And if you can help me, if we're ever in a situation where you think it may be a do you know who I am situation, we'll, just give me just give me we'll, a signal. We'll get a hand signal going just a, and you'll a know. A special hand signal and I'll consider it and we'll see what I can do. Nice. All right, here we go. Are you ready for these predictions? Oh boy. Mark, I'm hoping that the Kickstarter police will will finally step up and do something. You know, we have all this ridiculousness happening in Kickstarter where they're taking our money for a, a project and not using it the way they should. So I'm hoping that either we'll police ourselves and people will start buying less Kickstarters and there will be a, a shift in Kickstarter to come back to a customer service angle, whereas Pose, it was going completely in the other way. I'm sick and tired of just being lied to and people playing fast and loose with language. Like the way that Colossal kept dancing around this whole notion of what constitutes fulfillment. Uh, I, I, look, the point of Kickstarter was supposed to offer a greater degree of transparency. Again, as I said, not to offer another avenue of spin. I'm less looking for the Kickstarter police. I would just like a little bit more standards of decency and transparency. That's all I want. I think we're going to see a lot more balance pains this year. And what I mean by that it looks as though Fantasy Flight Games is is scaling down quite extensively. Oh yeah, and I think it's much like any other any other genre, like video games or movies or any other business thing, where where there's this you know expansion and reduction, and it's this back and forth. Now that the board game industry is getting a little bit bigger, those little fluxes back and forth are much greater, and I think some of these companies aren't you know, anticipating these as much. And I think there's going to be a little bit more balance pains, like I said. So I think we're going to see uh, a few more big falls this year. So we'll see how that goes. That being said, I think this is going to be a very big year. I think the last two years, there have been some great games, but if you can see on BGG, not a lot of them have come up into the top 10. You know, we, it you know, uh, I think it's 2017 was such a fantastic year. I really think that this year we're going to have, some really great games. I hope you're right. The other thing I'm thinking, Mark, I think we're finally done with Terraforming Mars expansions. I think, <laughs> I think, I think they might finally be finished. Two things in board gaming are constant and, and ever continuing Walker Terraforming Mars expansions and Chinese new year. And finally, I think I am going to do two, not, I'm not going to host them, but I think I'm going to participate in two event games this year. I think one is going to be, War Room, and the other one is either going to be uh, Civ, Giant Civ game, or a, or a uh, Twilight Imperium game. But I definitely think I'm my my goal is to participate in two event games this year. All right, I'll I'll, I'll hope to tr- I'll try to make sure that that is Mega Civ rather than Twilight Imperium, because I can definitely attest that I think that would be a better use of your time. And shall we end with the traditional? New Year's resolution that we've made for the past three years and actually what? held? Yes. Which is to keep doing the podcast? Keep, well, we'll keep, I think, I think we'll keep doing the podcast, Mark. Okay. So I'll see you here next week? Yes, sir.
Well, that's going to do it for this week, and thank you so much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. Do you know who I am? For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. I want to do a special thanks to all those who spread the word, be it on sharing it on Facebook or posting stuff on Reddit or just telling your friends. Thank you for making this podcast as great as it is. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.